HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, everyone. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. It's my podcast where I interview amazing people in the world of food and wine and discover what has led to their successes and how they've overcome their failures, or let's just call them challenges today. Today, my guest is a woman who is masterful at curing hangovers with food. She has a brand new show on Munchies called... The Hangover Show, very, <laughs> very creative, uh, which is entertaining even if you don't have hangovers, which I mean, I don't know if all of you listening are going to be disappointed to hear this, but I've actually never had a hangover. I don't get like, them very You don't get them either, very no. okay. <laughs> um, and she's kind of famous for creative sausages. I actually fell in love with her when I read an Instagram post to her followers. And I'm actually going to read it to you. I don't often read to you, dear <laughs> listener, but this I found completely irrepressible oh, and delightful. I'm scared. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it was not. It, it was in the summer, Okay, um, if that brings you back. And it says, I've been getting a lot of shitty and downright aggressive <laughs> DMs from people who are pissed off about the lack of sausage grids on here lately. Um, pause. Sausage grids, that's like where she has these really beautiful, very colorful uh, sausages. Back to her. Here's the thing. A, chill, and (laughs) B, give a girl a minute. I've been doing this shit for other people and barely making a living for my entire adult life. I'm working on doing my own thing, and it is a long road. Uh, Emphasis mine. So keep your dang panties on. (laughs) And then she goes on to um, post some serious sausage parm, as I said. And uh, we've got some Thai curry sausage and chicken kale pesto. Anyway, if you guys like that kind of attitude, you have to listen to this interview with... Cara Nicoletti. Cara, welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'm, oops, I'm really so happy to have you here. And I, I have to admit, 
you know, some some of these shows are a little bit more meta than others. Mm-hmm. But when I look at all of the things that you've done, you have uh, you've been a baker, mm-hmm. you've written a book, uh, you've been a butcher. You're now doing this. Um, you've done this incredible TV series, or not TV, but whatever yeah. video series um, with munchies. It feel, and then that last uh, p- the post I just read. It feels like you're feeling your way. I am. Um, I mean, I also, I I studied literature and Latin at NYU, so um, what I'm doing now really has nothing to do with what I've studied, and uh, I've I've kind of taken my own path always, so I'm not sure where it's going, um, but I like to have my hands in as many things as I can. So this is the meta part. So, you know, I was at, like, Food and Wine for decades, and now I'm like, I'm figuring it out. Like, this this show's a part of it. So, you know, we're, like, in different places, but I feel like there's also a way in which we're not, like, in the same place, but we're certainly on the same road, like, you know, Hoba Packs, and um, although I think the... Well, and I think we both have great food along the road. I was going to say, your food's better than mine, but I don't know about that. I don't think that's true. Yeah, I think that my food's actually been... Your food is amazing. My food has been really good. Actually, let's just pause there for a minute because you are a really great cook and I am a very compromised cook. And, um, you know, I I wrote this book all about my cooking failures Mm -hmm. and one of them happened last night. Okay. So I had a chicken carcass. Mm-hmm. It actually was an amazing chicken carcass because the chicken was from White Gold Butchers. Oh, I love and them. And I know you really the love best, them. Yeah. Okay, so they're great. I'm like, oh, I love this chicken carcass. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, put the carcass in a pot and I put water in it and then I put all kinds of stuff in it that should have made it have great flavor. Yeah. Um, carrots, um, parsley, celery, um, coriander, uh, star anise, mm. uh, cardamom, um, ginger, like you, yeah. I kept going. Like I really was gonna get a flavorable pot of soup, yeah. and it sucked. It was what like what was bad about it? It had no flavor. It had no flavor. So what happened? So uh, did you roast the bones? No. Did you roast the carcass? So that I think is like the number one thing that people do wrong. It's not wrong. That's I think technically well, had no called flavor, a, so something. a blonde stock. Um, oh. But whenever I'm making a stock or a broth, I always make sure I roast the bones because um, that's gonna add much more flavor. I also will roast some of the vegetables. So, um, I will, you know, keep the onion skins on and just half them Didn't and then do that roast either. That. The <laughs> skins actually add really good flavor and really good color, um, to your stock. So you should always roast those and I'll do the same with garlic roast it. You don't want it to be like charred because you don't want it to have that bitter Burned, taste, yeah. but just nice and brown and roasted, uh, it makes a big difference, I yeah. think. Yeah. I began just throwing everything. Like I, yeah. I found some seaweed and <laughs> oh I rehydrated the seaweed and I threw it in. And I just but, kept, you know, salt also makes a huge difference. I know it sounds really basic, yeah. but sometimes salt uh, it makes all the different and acid make all the difference in the world. So an acid like lemon juice or vinegar will cloud your broth a little bit, but I think it's worth it for the the flavor that it adds to it and how it brings everything okay, out. Okay, that was such a detour, but thank yeah, you. you're welcome. <laughs> not, not That's so disappointing. It really is. That you know, it so was. Much, yeah. I felt like it was a Sunday, yeah. and there it was. And it probably smelled amazing. Not really. No. And and I was, you know, asking my husband and daughter to taste it, and like, it just tastes like dishwater. So we're yeah. moving on. Yeah. Um, so I'm intrigued by all points of your story, but I want to start with Voracious, which is uh, your book, because when you were talking about the book, which is, was an outgrowth, I guess, of your blog, Mm -hmm. Yummy Books, it 
is looking at um, books and recipes together. Yeah. But one of the reasons you seem drawn to books and recipes is that they clear your head and they're, it's not like reading and cooking is always joyful, but it gets to a place in your soul. And I wonder if you could just talk about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, believe it or not, it's, it's funny for me now to think of the fact that I was a very, very painfully shy child um, because I'm able to get on camera and do things. And that's something I never thought I would be able to do. But I was very introverted and shy as a child. And books were really a refuge for me. Reading was really like almost a social interaction. Um, <laughs> I it love really, that idea. it was. So, you know, the <laughs> characters, characters were like my friends. And so eating the food, cooking the food that they were eating was a way to make them feel a little bit more real um, and world earthly. So it was something that I've been really interested in for a long time, like since I was a kid. And then I went to Did English. you keep a list or something? Because I did. A, the books are really great. And I think a lot of people can relate to those books. Well, when I was doing research for the book, I went back home and I found my mom had kept all my books from when I was a kid, which is amazing. Um, and I, there were all these like, you know, little pencil lines in the food scenes, which was crazy for me to see because I didn't even remember that that was... Um, something I was like so obsessed with. But then I went away from home and I went to NYU and I was studying literature, but I was also working, you know, front of house in restaurants. And um, those two passions, food and literature, kind of melded again. So um, it, it just seemed like a really natural thing. I was working in restaurants when I graduated from NYU. I wanted to be working in publishing, but it was 2008. There were no jobs. So um, it was a way, writing about books was a way for me to talk about them again, because I was mostly cooking. So let's talk about the painfully shy thing. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think helped you get over being so painfully shy? I actually think a big part of it was working in restaurants um, and, and food. I mean, we don't always treat it like this, but it cooking is a community and it's warmth, it's hospitality. Um, and even if you're in the back of the house, you have to, you know, put that into the food that you're cooking. So also just, it was a way for me to make relationships with people that I otherwise probably wouldn't have met. Um, it's really easy in New York to just stay in your bubble and not go out and not do anything. Um, so working in restaurants was really one of my one of the entries into socializing in New York for me um, I think it had I think it had a lot to do with it and what do you think of that that restaurant culture because it's it's sort of amazing because you're part of such a team like if you burn mm -hmm. your sauce then the yeah. fish guys really messed up totally and also uh, you know the the dishwasher is so crucial to you you depend on him or her for everything. So there's a whole chain of people that are working together in this really beautiful sort of ballet. Um, and, you know, you're making connections with people that probably you would never meet otherwise. So that was huge for me. But restaurant culture can be so difficult. Um, and one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to get out of it so badly was I was I was working with all of these men. It was very macho and masculine and and the overriding feeling was that we were bullies to each other and mean to each other. And was that supposed to be a, a good thing? Yeah, it was sort of, I remember one chef being like, you know, we break you down so we can build you up again. And it was like, this is not the army. Like we're cooking for people. <laughs> this is something that's supposed to be joyful and warm. Why are we being so unkind to each other? Um, and 
that was something that I found much less in butcher shops. There was much more camaraderie. I think that the idea that uh, in a butcher shop, which one might think would mm-hmm. be really macho, it is. And, you know, you're yeah. hauling around it carcasses, and I, I've seen you cut. There's, uh, you know, you have like a beautiful cut through like a big mm-hmm. piece of meat. But then you take the cleaver, and then there's yeah. the hammer that clonks yep. on the cleaver, and then you split the meat. I yeah. mean, it's quite it a- is, aggressive. It, so I and I think pe- that's the way that people always look at butchering, um, and that is a lot of it. It's a lot of it is this like sort of large scale brute force masculine thing. You have to be physically incredibly strong, um, mentally strong, but there's also a lot of really small quiet technical moments um, that I think women are really good at. Uh, And so that's one of the reasons that some of the best butchers I've ever worked with have been women. So let's talk about the physical strength. Mm -hmm. Do do you need to be in training for it? Like, how does one, you know, train to, like, do that? Well, I mean, on a really basic level, you kind of have to be big. <laughs> um, and You're tall, right? How tall I'm tall. Are you? I'm like five, maybe over five, nine. Um, and I took after my dad. I'm broad. It's, I've never been small. Uh, and that was something I always sort of hated about myself um, growing up and as a teenager. And it's hard as a woman to accept your body. Of course, that's a huge sweeping statement. But butchery was really important for me because I started thinking a lot more about what my body can do and how I can use it as a tool and less, you know, how it looks. Um, and so that, that was huge for me, but, you know, I will say sometimes small men, small women would come into the shop and I would just be like, I, I want to give you a job, but I got to see you <laughs> carry this pig in from the truck first, this, this arm chuck. And if a lot of times they couldn't do it, it's just a matter of, you know, Maybe if you're small, going lifting a ton of weights, I'm not sure. Or, or maybe, right, maybe that's not. Maybe or maybe not it's not for you, you, and that's okay, too. That's okay yeah. Too. And what about the mental preparation? I feel like there's so many part mental parts that would go mm-hmm. into this. For you, what does that mean, like being mentally prepared for it? Well, for me, there was huge, a huge learning curve in terms of toughness mentally, you know, dealing with men all day and um, being critiqued for your work in, in you know, very blunt ways. Um, and that was something I was able to get used to pretty quickly. I liked it a lot better. Um, but also for me, meat is... But you liked what better? I like that sort of direct communication. Um, it, it feels more helpful to me. Um, but meat is also emotional. I think meat is emotional. If you're eating meat correctly, it should be sort of an emotional experience. And if you're working with farmers and going to visit slaughterhouses, then it's definitely, it's a heavy subject. Um, I don't eat very much meat because of that. So I think there's a, there should be a gravity to it, uh, that sometimes there isn't with this macho culture. Um, and it's always really important for me to like, think about what I'm doing really, what I'm cutting and, um, have a reverence for it, sort of. Is there some kind of meditative state actually mm-hmm. at being at one with those animals? I mean, is that... Yeah, I mean, it's definitely just on a... It's it's very meditative to cut meat, which is one of the reasons that I, I like it a lot. But, um, 
you know, when you go and see the animals at the farm and, you know, sometimes I would go up for lambing season when all the baby lambs were being born. And um, I have slaughtered animals, which, of course, I just cried the whole time, but I felt like it was important for me to do it if I eat meat. Um, yeah, it's heavy. It's it's heavy. And I, I will be honest, I wish people didn't eat meat. I wish everyone was vegan, but it's never going to be that way. So um, do you really I, wish that? I do. I, and you wish that just because you think I'm animal. Why is that? I think it would be better for the environment, um, and that's a huge thing for me. Um, but, you know, obviously I love animals, and that's been something that's been hard for me to grapple with even since I was a kid. I mean, I grew up in this industry, so I've seen it from a young age, but, you know, and my little sister actually just became like a militant vegan. And that's been difficult for us, but I always say to her, I feel like I can change more from the inside than I can from the outside. Like her telling someone, don't eat meat, is not going to work. But if your butcher says to you, you have been here five days this week. You need to go home and I made you these veggie burgers. Go home and eat them. Like, <laughs> I don't want to see you again. I think that that makes a bigger difference. I don't know. People will probably give me a lot of hate for this. But, um, well, I think I remember there was a moment in time where there were people who were vegetarians and vegans who uh, crossed over and became ethical mm-hmm. meat eaters, mm-hmm. right? Because they, um, they want to encourage ethical animal husbandry and so there's something to that there is and uh and meat can be very sustaining it absolutely it it can be done well but the major thing is that it cannot be done well on a massive scale um and what that means is that if you want to eat meat sustainably you have to eat less of it and, and then you have to support sm- small farmers. You have to support small farmers, yeah. There's a lot of undoing to be done, and it feels sort of insurmountable, but I believe very strongly in the farmers that I work with and the work that I'm doing. I, I do. And what is the undoing? Like, what can people do to, for the undoing? I think the undoing is eating less and sort of thinking about okay. meat as more of a treat or, you know, not a necessity. So if I'm cooking meat, generally, it will be in very small amounts. And it will be, you think of meat as always the main event. Um, but it can just be sort of something that adds something to a, a dish of vegetables or grains, whatever. Right. Um, I'm intrigued by something that I see as a tiny little theme here, which mm-hmm. is that you did this in, incredibly entertaining and delightful <laughs> hangover show, but you really don't get hangovers yeah. <laughs> and you're a butcher, but you don't really, I know eat. I've been saying it's like, well, that must mean, what does that mean about you? Uh, well, you know, I don't, um, drink very much. I do, you know, like I, I like to drink. I'm 32. Um, I think I hit a wall at 27 where I looked in the mirror all of a sudden and was like, Oh my God, you cannot drink the way you used to. It was like a full oh body hangover. And after that, I just kind of slowed down. Um, but I don't know what it means about me. Maybe I'm just a fraud. <laughs> I just think, I think it's just, it's, maybe it is um, like a reverse commitment that you're trying yeah. to, to take care, you know? Yes. Like you could look at it that way. Yeah. Like, you know, um, you don't have a hangover, but you want to help those people who yeah. do. And you're not going to eat a lot of meat, but you want people who do eat meat to, um, to do, it. do it the right way. Yeah. And and not judgmentally, but to help people it's find imp- a way to eat meat. It's important for me that feeding and cooking is always, um, a, a hospitable and kind thing. I think it's the kindest thing you can do for someone. So I liked the idea for the hangover show because 
it's caretaking. It's cooking. It's restorative healing cooking, but in a funny way. You know, it's not like I'm trying to cure cancer or anything like that. It's, you know, it's a it's a funny way to heal people, which I think food is really powerful for. Right. I'm. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but I want to get back to um, your sister and your family. <laughs> yeah. Um, families are always... Families are crazy. <laughs> families are fascinating. And you're, you do come from a family of butchers. Yeah, I do. And as I understand it, you're fourth generation mm-hmm. um, butcheress. Yeah, Tell I me am. about your family. So my, it goes back, butchering goes back to my great, great grandfather, um, who was actually like a he was like a Jewish cowboy in Russia. Um, and, but he also slaughtered meat and sold it. And, um, what does it mean? He was a Jewish cowboy. He was like a cattle wrangler and, and, um, kept, kept cattle and, and killed them himself and butchered them himself and sold it. So we don't know a ton about him. A lot of our history got lost, um, in the way that Jewish history gets lost a lot of times, but then my great grandpa, uh, and my grandpa and their, you know, my grandpa's brother had a shop together um, first in the north end of Boston and then later in um, a suburb called Newton, Massachusetts. And I really grew up there. It's my mom's side of the family and it skipped that generation. He had three daughters and they didn't want to do it. He didn't want them to do it. So it skipped a generation, but we all grew up working there, working the cash register, um, sometimes getting to make sausages and some of the like least, the, the not dangerous stuff. Um, and yeah, it skipped a whole generation and I picked it back up again. I'm the first woman in my family to do it. Um, and my grandpa was really horrified at first, but now he's, he's super excited. Everything about your grandfather, um, <laughs> I find so sweet and he's, so powerful. Yeah. When you first told him that you, uh, were going to pursue butchering, Aside from him not wanting you to do it because he really envisioned you, like he wanted you to have a desk and mm-hmm, clean hands yeah. and no blood on your yeah. apron and all of that. Did he, and then he got over it, <laughs> was he able to teach you things that nobody else had taught you? Yeah. What was he, that time like with him? He is still able to teach me so much about the business side of things, um, which is something that I was never trained in in the years that I've been working as a butcher. It's just been cutting and cutting and making and doing. Um, but I've never had access to what it actually means to make money as a butcher. And he is, he's really been instrumental and amazing in teaching me a lot about that, which is huge if I ever want my own place. So, and do you want your own place? I do want my own place, probably not a full butcher shop, but I want somewhere I can make sausages and sell them to people. Um, and he actually came this past weekend to look at some spaces with me, which was so fun. And it was really, I mean, he's 88 years old and he came for a day trip from Boston to look at meat shops with me, which was like, do you think his work has kept him young? I do. I think actually what has kept him young and we, my sisters and my cousins and I talk about this all the time, but he's the most positive person I've ever met in my entire life. And he watching him interact with his customers growing up was also really informative and, and a huge lesson for me in terms of what it means to 
serve people and um what did he what did you learn he was just so willing to do whatever he want whatever a customer wanted he really was and um he would always say like if you do what a customer wants if you make them happy then they'll ask for less and it wasn't that he was hoping that they would ask Ooh, for less that's clever yeah but but they did you know and um there was one year that they ran out of turkeys and a woman had promised that she would get the turkey and she was so distraught and he gave his our family turkey to that family like he wanted to make sure that customer got their turkey for Thanksgiving and he just always made it really clear that the customer was really important and that food is about you know cooking for people um i want to talk about his hands oh, there's I love this his hands. beautiful shot um of his hands on a diner table mm-hmm. and of course at first i read it and being the editor i'm like dinner table yeah <laughs> no it was, <laughs> and it a, was diner. a diner <laughs> and then i looked more closely yeah. and it really was a diner, a diner table. table we go and he has a cute little ring he wears a pinky ring that my grandma ring. got him um he's been wearing it forever and ever and it's the best it's like a onyx pinky ring um and so i what just about those hands i just love his hands so much because i know them so well and i've watched them do so many things uh, my whole life and also they're so soft because he's been you know most of his life he was touching animal fat all the time so it's just i there's something so familiar to me about them um anytime i have an opportunity to take a picture of them i do i just love them With that, we're going to take a quick pause, and we'll be back talking about how to cure that hangover, because I know you're (laughs) going to want to wait. This, the food (laughs) that Cara makes, is so creative, so whether it's going to cure your hangover or it is just going (laughs) to, you know, make you laugh and um, feed you well, you're going to find that out right after this commercial. I wanted to give you a heads up that I am going to be in Austin for South by Southwest. I get to interview the totally badass Martha Hoover, who has restaurants in Indianapolis. She has Cafe Patashu, and she is completely inspiring to me. It's going to be a live episode of Speaking Broadly at South by Southwest podcast stage in the Fairmont Hotel, and it's on March 12th. I'm excited to go to South By. I hope you all are excited to go to South By and that you're going to join me there. If you want to come see me live, just visit sxsw.com where you can purchase a badge to see not only me, but the entire inspiring conference of sessions of music, film, and other totally amazing stuff. There's a big food channel there, and I'm also going to be interviewing Andrew Zimmern and Jose Andreas. Those two men have a lot to say, and they're changing the world one day at a time. So come check out my podcast. Come check out Jose and Andrew. And you got to join me for South by Southwest in Austin. See you then. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan. And today I have the inimitable Cara Nicoletti. Uh, Cara, we were talking about hangovers. Yes. And um, <laughs> so when you intuit what someone wants to eat, uh, because clearly the, the theme here is you want to treat people kindly yes. and you want to help them. And hospitality is in your blood, at least a few generations mm-hmm. worth of <laughs> DNA. So you want to help these hopeless hangover hooligans. Yes. How much do you find out about like what they like to eat before you cook for them? So we do make them fill something out a little bit before just to make sure that people don't have allergies and stuff like that. But a lot of times I'll look over their social media and see if they're taking pictures of food, what kind of stuff they like to eat. Um, and I'll have a few ideas in mind of what I want to make for them before they call and tell me what they like so that I can make something sort of off the cuff. Um, but there's sort of some hangover rules or staples that people always seem to want. So I usually just stick with a lot okay, of grease. What the, <laughs> is it salt and grease or just straight, straight grease? It's really just salt. Yeah, salty and greasy. It's very rare that people say they want something sweet. Usually I'll give them something sweet also just because, you know, it's fun. But <laughs> most of the time people say they want like diner food. Um, so it's just a a matter of figuring out how to make that really sort of funny and beautiful and tongue-in-cheek and good. I like the way that you say that you're making food that can be eaten horizontally. Yes. Because you really do not expect people to be, like, standing by the punch bowl. Yep. No, no. no. And a lot of people will comment and say, like, I can't even move when I have a hangover. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's why I'm here for these people. (laughs) They don't have to move. I'm doing this for them. You're like the food masseuse. Like, you're just going to massage them back to good health. And uh, has anyone ever just been so miserable? Like, Yeah. I mean, you know... we were able to make everyone look great, but everyone was actually sick. Like everyone actually didn't feel good yeah. for the most part. Does that make you feel bad at all? A little because I know that when when I you know rarely have a hangover, I don't want to be around anyone. But <laughs> they signed up for it. They I signed guess. up for it and they get to eat a great meal and we had a really fun time and nobody died. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think everyone ended up having more fun than any of us were expecting. It was really, really fun to film. You picked uh, great characters. I think so. The food itself was crazy creative. <laughs> and thinking about the places that you'd come from that I know about anyway, like mm-hmm. uh, Pies and Thighs and Colony, mm-hmm. um, Meat Hook. Yeah. That didn't tell me in advance of this show no. that your food was going to be like pizza pockets yeah. and um, <laughs> well, things like that. I love the, you know, the pancake taco. Mm-hmm. Where is that coming from? Well, at first, when we were first brainstorming about the show, I made this really thoughtful menu of things that, you know, just examples of things I'd like to cook. And um, they were all very tame and and pretty. And then we sort of, Alana and I. Who's Alana? She's from Munchies. She was um, one of the producers on the show. We started really thinking about it. And I think that there's a lot of... uh, food shows there's not a lot of food shows where women are sort of in on the joke of how funny food can be um and how light and tongue-in-cheek food can be and i think we wanted to make it more fun and funny and And are you the right person to do that like is there something about you that actually is extremely funny i I, mean you're delightful (laughs) well but you know i think one of the things i really like to do with sausages is sort of 
create meals that are within a casing. So um, there's something sort of meta about like a pancake taco that reminds me a little bit of how I would take a sausage and make pho and matzo ball soup and put them into a sausage. So um, not thinking about food as just linear and straight, but, you know, doing fun fun things with them, re, kind of reinventing a wheel that's been there for a long time. So it started with the reinventing of the sausage. When I see your sausages, they are crazy colors <laughs> yeah. because I'm accustomed to a, a sausage case being pretty monochromatic. Yeah. A little pink, a little yeah. beige, <laughs> or a little white. Yeah, Brown is as far brown as it goes. Big, yeah. Yeah, brown's big, brown's big color. <laughs> but when you look at uh, your feed or the sausages that you've made they're bright green yeah. they're confetti colored yeah, it's they're, important um beet well actually literally yeah. um you know beet maroon yeah. black <laughs> uh so you have discovered an entire range of colors mm-hmm. what type of r&d goes into that food well because it's important to me to eat less meat um that really was sort of at the forefront of that i was thinking you know if i put half vegetables and half meat into a sausage, then people are automatically going to eat less meat, which um, was kind of the way that it started. Uh, So a borscht sausage is 50% beets, tons of fresh dill, um, and, you know, a little bit of pork. Um, Chicken kale pesto is tons of kale and Parmesan and lemon. So it was a way for me to make produce forward creations, which... Um, I had never eaten before and I wanted to eat. So, and then it sort of went into like, what if you want chicken tikka masala and you don't want to have to make it from scratch? Well, here it is. It's in a little casing and it's a matter of, it's a matter research wise for me of going out and eating a lot of those things and over and over again and tasting them until I can understand the flavors and pare them down to their essential thing to communicate it in a small format. I was wondering because when you, if you take the pho example, mm-hmm. pho is a lot. I mean, a lot of the about the flavor, but it's also a lot about the broth. Yes, and matzbel soup is a lot about the soup. But somehow you've translated that and then put it in a. What mm-hmm. type of skin do you use for? So if it was matzbel soup, that's chicken. So I'll put it inside of a lamb casing so that there's no pork in it. Um, but for something like the beef pho, it will be in a hog casing, which is like the standard. Got casing. It. Yeah. Uh, so, how did you translate something that where the natural association is liquid yes. <laughs> to be inside of a case? Well, for soup, I really like making soup sausages. Um, I also have a, a but they're soup not dumpling. soupy, right? But so do they you put are, them in the soup? I put, I put, I I will reduce a broth down until it's gelatin, and then put it into the casing so that when you cut the sausage open the broth is there so those I always recommend that you eat them in a bowl because they're going to be juicy so they're really nice if you put them like over rice or rice noodles or um, even a salad because it kind of dresses whatever is underneath it Um, but yeah I'll I have a soup dumpling one that literally has cubes of like very reduced broth like what's inside of a soup dumpling Um, and so it yeah, it acts like a soup dumpling when you cut it open. I have to just say that it seems so brilliant to me. It also seems like you could make um, from the sausages. Could you make meatballs from them? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, balls with yes. some of it being meaty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then could you 
roast them to cook them and then put them in a soup. I'm just trying to think like you. You could. I would say the soup ones, you really kind of want to eat on their own yeah. or over something. But the other ones are, one of the things I like best about them is how many ways that you can use them. Um, putting them into beans or pasta or um, a salad, using them like a lettuce wrap, anything. So it's not just like a sausage on a bun, which is... So I, I feel like I've, you know... I've seen a lot that goes on in the food world. I haven't seen a lot of this exact thing. I haven't either. Um, it just seems really smart. So <laughs> right this minute, mm-hmm. um, you've left the you left uh, Foster Sunry, which mm-hmm. is were you making your very own sausages there? I was. So the meat case was yours. The meat, the sausages or? were mine. Um, and Aaron Foster, who's the owner, let me have creative range and make all kinds of crazy things. Um, and I'm pretty sure they're still making some of them. I was such a control freak that I'm not sure they're making them exactly the same way. Um, so tell me about that. I love control freaks. Um, <laughs> it's the only thing I'm a control freak about is sausages. Really? It's the only thing I'm like very organized about in my life. Um, why is that? I don't know. Why it's, are you disorganized about everything else? <laughs> even more importantly. Ask my mom. I'm not sure. It's, I'm not disorganized, but it's, I don't have that like anal retentive Capricorn quality that I wish that I had, um, unless it comes to sausages and sort of, and cooking in general, like organizing my ingredients and making crazy detailed lists of what has to happen when and what I need and, um, and not letting anyone else touch them. <laughs> well, that's that is one hundred percent quality control, right yes, there. Yeah, Which but is good. you know, and I have my grandpa and I were talking this weekend when he was here, and he's like, "Well, eventually you're gonna have to hire someone, and you're gonna have to teach them how to do this the same way," which is sort of terrifying to me, but. I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> Sometime in the future, yeah. not right now. <laughs> not right but, now. But right now you're not actually making sausages mm-hmm. because you, you're trying to figure it out. So mm-hmm. let's just talk about this figuring it out mm-hmm. thing because really near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So how hard is it to figure it out? Like you have sort of thrown a few things at the wall. Mm-hmm. You have something you're really passionate about. Yeah. But like, what are you thinking about? Well, I think what I'm, what's been the hardest for me is figuring out. So at first I was thinking I will go to an incubator space and I'll make it out of an incubator space. But then it's a matter of like, who can I sell it to? How do I ship it? So then I was like, I'll do an incubator space and I'll use a shipping company and we'll do it that way. You can't make money that way. You can't. Mm -hmm. So then I was thinking maybe I'll do it out of someone else's thing. So you're um, at this moment in time, like Mm -hmm. having done the, um, the book and the sausages and the butchery and the working in restaurants and some TV. Mm -hmm. So to me, you've like, you've touched a lot of communication points. Mm -hmm. Um, but the thing that you hold dear is actually to continue with Mm -hmm. the, the sausage. And so what role in that case does something like Munchies play in that journey for you? Was that just a fun thing to do? That was, I mean, I've been working with Munchies since they launched years ago. I saw you have, you have piece, you have a lot of how to pieces on the site. Lauren Cinnamon, who's one of the EPs there, has been really kind to me. She was actually a customer of mine at the Meat Hook. Um, And so she asked me to do a video when they had first launched. And then we always kind of stayed in touch. I I did a few things with them. And I think we've always been trying to figure out how I can do something else with them. Um, And so for me, my sausages are kind of, and I hate this, but I hate saying this, but they're kind of tied to a personal brand. Um, I think it is an important element that a woman is doing this thing that hasn't really been done before. Um, so in what way? 
I, I mean, I, you don't see a lot of women in the meat space. Um, and But why is it important? It's important to me because when I was coming up in the food industry, if I had seen women doing what I was doing, I would have known that it was an option for me and that there was space for me. And I kind of bulldozed my way in anyway, but it was really hard. It was really, really difficult. And even now it's difficult. Like I think the learning curve of opening my own space is harder for me than it is. I see a lot of men that I know just kind of doing it. But for me, everything takes a little bit longer because I'm communicating with old men who own <laughs> meat plants and old men who own, you know, production spaces and they don't want to talk to me. So I have to get other people to be. Yeah. So it's important to me to be a, a face of something a face of food for young women who are thinking they may want to do this that isn't, you know, a grandmother or a model influencer who sort of dabbles in cookie making because there is no in-between of just like a normal woman who actually is good at a craft. Something that I hear time and again on this show is how important it is for women to be seen Mm -hmm. doing their craft and... Uh, I had um, I'd spoken to someone who had won a baking competition and then the show didn't air, mm. so she wasn't uh, seen winning. That's you know, terrible. It's, it's terrible. But it was, and she was an African American woman Ugh. making it a double yes. a double hit. Like she had never seen anyone who looked remotely like her. Yeah. Um, you know, in that position, and she wanted to be there to that's... show people how it can. Um, happen. She will have an amazing career. She yeah, is extraordinary. So. Um, Val- Valerie Lomas, you heard oh, it here first. She's, yes. um, you know her. Yes. She's great. Yeah. So um, I'm intrigued by that. The other thing that you seem to have left behind so far mm-hmm. is the is the writing. Do you have yeah. um, that in your heart st- still sort of tending to that? Yeah. I, I mean, I would love to in the future write something more um, meat-centric. Uh, I don't know exactly what that would look like. I would really love to write something sausage-centric. But I'm also writing fiction for myself right now. I don't know if it will ever go anywhere. Um, But I've missed writing a lot. So I'm kind of trying my hand at it. And it's a completely different thing. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't think it will ever see the light of day. But it's important to me to keep sort of flexing that muscle. So It it feels like there's so many things that... You have such a passion about it, and if you don't do them, you feel a loss. Like, yeah. not actually butchering, you feel a loss of that, or not I writing, do. you feel a loss of that. Yeah, it's two separate parts of my brain. So when I was writing my cookbook, it was really important to me that I still be working, and I was working full-time um, as a butcher at the time, and it was really difficult, but then I took a little bit, like a month off, to just focus on finishing the book. And I found that it was so much harder for me to write when I wasn't like physically exhausting my body all day long. Okay, why is that? I don't know. It's like if your body is so tired, your brain kind of like clicks on and and you have, I mean, it's a muscle. So it was like the one muscle that I wasn't working as hard during the day and it was there for me. But then when I was just sitting in a room all day trying to do that, I couldn't do it. So I think it's important for me to do both, um, to tire my body out and my brain. And cooking can do both things, which is something I really like about it. But it's important for me to always have both going on. Yeah. 
back to uh, women or people who in- inspire. Mm-hmm. You are tremendously inspiring. <laughs> who else should listeners know about, learn about, look up, Google, because they're breaking molds, doing great work? It's a great question. I think Erica and Jocelyn from White Gold, who you know, um, are incredible. I think they're so inspiring and um, I wish I had seen more women like them when I was coming up. Um, what, what about, I mean, I happen to love them and I'm very devoted to, <laughs> to Gold. Um, but what in your interaction with them makes them? Well, Erica was hugely instrumental in my, uh, understanding of cutting beef because she, when she left LA came to the meat hook to sort of freelance for us for a little bit. And, um, there was a huge gap in my knowledge of breaking beef beef shoulders specifically because sometimes things get lost and it's a busy shop and one person just does one thing over and over so I really wanted to tackle that and I had this like mental block with it and she and I scheduled shifts so we would get there at 7 a.m. together every morning we just do it together over and over and over again and she taught me how to do that and that's huge Um, and she was so supportive of me which was something that up until that point I hadn't had in a woman in the industry yet. Um, I think, especially in an industry like that, we're often told there's only room for one of us and that our value is based on being the only one. So it fosters this kind of like competitive thing where, which I understand if another woman comes in and you think there's only room for one woman, you're going to think that that person's going to replace you. So I never felt that with Erica. She was very supportive of me and I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a mind numbing idea, but yeah. I can see how it would be real. Like yeah. it's tokenism at its worst. It is. And it's, it's one of the most disappointing things to me about my come up in the restaurant and butchery world is that there wasn't more camaraderie between the women I was working under. Um, and I think it's happening more now. I think people are more aware of it. Um, and that's amazing. That's really great. Those two um, women are not 5'9". They are tiny, and Erica tiny. is tiny. And um, <laughs> Jocelyn is, she's taller than Erica for sure, but she is so strong. Jocelyn is so strong. Erica is fully willing to admit when she cannot do something, which is also something I really appreciate about her because um, I think we... I always feel this very stubborn need to be like, no, no, I can do it because I don't want anyone to think that I can't. Um, but she's always willing to be like, nope, I need help with this. And that's important. It's important <laughs> to, you know, tap out so you don't hurt yourself. Um, but yeah, they're amazing. I think they're really great. Their last names, Erica Nakamura, Erica Nakamura. And, and Jocelyn Guest. Right. Yeah. So now you can really look them up. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. They are awesome. Or um, check out White Gold. Mm-hmm. Um, that brings us to the conclusion of this week's episode of Speaking Broadly. Carl, it was great to have you on the show. I cannot wait till you're back in sausage production. Me too. <laughs> I bet. Because <laughs> um, I want to try those. I think they're just, they're so right for the uh, food moment going forward. Which brings me to the, my one last question, actually, that I, <laughs> I I can't resist. It's like, bonus round. Oh, no, wait a minute. Um, so there was the bacon moment. We both lived so deeply and thoroughly through the bacon yes. moment, which is past. Like, it, I don't, thank you. I, it, it, it's over. It's over. Um, and I think we're like in a minimalist meat moment, so that's, mm-hmm. um, that's good. But what do you think the future of meat, aside from you know, being sort of less yeah. is like, what do you think the next meat that people will fall in love with or the next cut is? And that's going to be our last word. My here. hope is that the next 
well, I don't want it to get obnoxious, but the next food trend is sausages. I hope. I really do. <laughs> I think I'm seeing it a little bit. Um, and I know I'm pretty sure David Chang recently on a podcast said that he thinks that that's the next forefront of food trends, which I hope is true. I think there's great potential for um, eating less meat by eating good sausage, which you would never think. <laughs> so it sounds self-serving, but if Dim no, Chang actually, said yeah, it, and I, it's true, yeah, I that's it, awesome. I think it, yeah. I think it And your be sausage true. will be better than the rest. <laughs> okay. Come back next week. Um, let, if people want to find you, Cara, how do they find you on social? Pretty much everywhere. I'm just Cara Nicoletti, and I'm, it's Cara with a C. Great. <laughs> and uh, I am FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. I want to thank my amazing engineer, David Tattashore, and my right-hand, Carlin Thompson, for joining me today uh, here on the show. And come back next week. If there's somebody you want to hear uh, me interview or there's comments that you have, you know I love hearing from you. It's like when I was a little girl, I like ran to the door. I always loved mail. And now I'm kind of that way about you know DMs on, DMs on Instagram. <laughs> so make my day. And uh, don't forget to check, out, check me out at South by Southwest. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.